Hi, I'm Michael, and welcome to Beyond the Screenplay, the podcast where each week we do a conversational deep dive analysis into a film. Today we are talking about Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? The 2000 film written and directed by the Coen brothers based on the Odyssey by Homer. I'm joined by the Beyond the Screenplay team, Trisha Rand. Hello, everyone. Brian Bittner. Everett. And Alex Cayeros. Hi. Uh, okay, so before we jump into the film, a reminder that our patron exclusive episode on Starship Troopers is available now <laughs> on our Patreon. Um, if you want to vote in our next poll for what movie we should be talking about for our May patron exclusive, head over to the Beyond the Screenplay Patreon. The link is in the show notes. And when you join, you'll be helping us get to our new goal for 1,250 patrons. Uh, so when we passed uh, 1,250 patrons, isn't it weird that you can say it both ways, 1,250 yeah. and 1,000? Anyway, when we pass 1,250 patrons, we're going to do a trilogy of episodes on the Born Identity, Supremacy, and Ultimatum, ending with a patron-exclusive episode on Legacy and Jason Bourne. Um, so yeah, that's all happening uh, over on Patreon. <laughs> yes. Really hard air quotes around Jason Bourne. <laughs> it's just Liza Cut. Anyway, uh, yeah, so that that's what's happening over on Patreon. But for now, let's talk about Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? So I saw this movie in my the film class that I took in high school. I remember it. it's probably the first Coen Brothers movie I saw uh, as I was, yeah, what, like 14, I guess, at that time. Uh, and I remember the teacher, like, framing it, like, it's based on the Odyssey by Homer. And I was like, okay, that's great. I don't know what that is. Uh, and then uh, I remember talking <laughs> about, like, you know, the cinematography and that this was the first, you know, to Roger Deakins, but this was the first film, the first Hollywood film to be, uh, you know, digitally color corrected, like mm. the entire film. And and so the look of it was very distinct and like a big deal at the time. Of like, we can do digital color correction now, everybody, like news stories about it. Yeah, it's interesting because Matrix and Lord of the Rings were also within this same like three year period. Mm. And they're all they both also famously did that. Right. Yeah, and, and I remember liking it and enjoying it and feeling smart for liking it, um, but not really, like, understanding why. Uh, and then after, Alex, you mentioned this as, like, a what you're watching uh, at some point in the last <clears throat> year or two or however long we've been doing this podcast. And it made me be like, I should uh, go back and watch it again. And so I did watch it again a couple months ago and then rewatched it today. And I feel like every time I've watched it, I've enjoyed it more and like mm -hmm. found myself sinking into the world and the symbolism uh, in a really enjoyable and gratifying way. So I feel like I've always liked this film and upon revisiting it, uh, I've liked it even more and more. Uh, yeah, I'm curious to, to maybe starting with you, Alex, like tell me about your relationship with this film. Yeah, I can't even remember the first time I saw it. Um... I know when it came out, I was aware of it and I was kind of, it was curious. It was like, what is this movie that's kind of a musical or something with George Clooney, like in the South or, and I think my parents saw it and liked it and you know, my dad liked the soundtrack or whatever. Um, so I, I was kind of like aware of all these things around it before I actually watched the movie and didn't really know what to make of it. And yeah, I saw it at some point, maybe in college uh, and 
it was just, you know, I, I appreciate the Coen brothers and I, and I, I like a lot of their films and I, and you know, I, I always understand that they're masters of the craft, even if my experience of their films leaves me kind of cold or it's like, yeah, that's a pretty cynical view of human nature. And, you know, this you know, philosophy you're, you're kind of putting into this film is that's neat, but I also just feel depressed kind of. And this movie is just like a confection. I don't know. It, it feels like in the same, it has a place in my heart, almost like Amelie, where it's just kind of this magical confection of a film that is just so delightful ultimately. And, and the, the way that the music brings this soulfulness to it, yet it's so irreverent and so light in so many ways. Uh, I don't know. I just really... It's just one of those movies that feels full of love. Uh, and, and I really just appreciate the Coen brothers version of that. Just getting to see a film from them that even though it goes to some dark places, ultimately just feels very like loving and and light and delightful. And uh, and so, yeah, it's just every time I watch it, I it's just a wonderful, lovely ride. And I, I always forget how funny it is and just how how tight it is in a lot of ways too. Mm -hmm. it, it just feels like every scene is pitch perfect. Everything kind of ties together in the end. All the setups have really like fun payoffs. It just feels like a very tight uh, film for a film that could have been more just disparate. You know, if you're doing like an odyssey, kind of a Homer odyssey that could feel more just truly meandering, truly random. And yet something about this film feels very, cohesive and it very much holds together so yeah it, it's one of my favorite films of theirs um as we we did in an earlier patron episode we kind of each chose a film we wanted to talk about and mine was inside lewin davis and i think there's a reason why both these films are my favorite Coen brothers films and i part of it is i think the musical aspect just there's a when you have especially like folk music woven into uh, you know, that, like a time and place, like in both those films, it just brings kind of a heart and a soulfulness that maybe is missing for me in some of their, I don't know, more kind of nihilistic or, or kind of colder uh, films. And so just the fact that they both bring this warmth and the soul with the music, just, yeah, it's, it's my kind of Coen Brothers uh, vibes. So yeah, yeah, love this film. Yeah, I definitely appreciate the, the like the tightness that you're talking about, because as you're saying, I think there's a version of this film that could be very indulgent. Uh, and I feel like this movie is not indulgent uh, and is like so much like better for it and is accessible and generous and in, in all those ways that you're talking about. Okay. So Trisha and Brian, you guys are, are the Cohen fans. Yep. Trisha, maybe let's start with you. Um, the Coens have made one of your favorite movies ever. How, where does this stand for you in, in your Cohen ranking? Cohenography. Yeah. I mean, this has got to be up there for me. I think it's one of their best. I really, I think it's one of their best. I also think in some ways it's an outlier for them. Um, and, you know, I think we talked about this a little bit with Inside Lewin Davis and, you know, how some of their films are more accessible than others. I think this one's incredibly accessible um, for some of the reasons you were just highlighting there, Alex. And, you know, this is really, really funny it's really, really quick. The comedy is physical, most of it. Like, the, there's plenty of, you know, sort of vocal, you know, like, dialogue, like, kind of wittiness to it. 
But none of it would mean anything if it weren't accompanied by, like, the physical performances of the three central characters, which are so funny. And and when I mean – when I say physical, I don't necessarily mean, like, slapstick in, like, Mm -hmm. he trips over a chicken and, like, you know, tumbles head over heels into the lake. Like, you don't get very much of that. But the facial expressions are so exaggerated, like so much of the time that it it almost feels, yeah, like it's a silent film or like a reference to like early cinema that was much more vaudevillian. And um, so I think there's a lot of that that's just like you could be very young and not understand any of the sort of classical references that are happening here um, and still find it to be very funny. So I think there's that. Also, you know, you're describing it, Alex, as being, like, kind of fluffy and light, and I agree. Like, in many of the other Coen Brothers movies, the stakes feel, like, so heavy, right, where it's, like, existential crisis, and, like, even when they're very funny, like, movies like Fargo is very funny in places, um, but, like, the stakes are everybody will die because of your foolishness, mm-hmm. right? And we talked about this when we talked about The Big Lebowski. Even in another broad comedy like Lebowski, someone still ends up dead. And there's like a an undercurrent sort of a menace um, or like a little bit of a darker tone to that movie. Um, and, you know, this movie is PG-13. So it's watchable by younger people. No one ends up dead in this movie. Not on screen anyway. It's not a great time for cows. <laughs> yeah, right. I do find that hard to watch. We can come back to that. Yeah. Um, but it is. It does have like a a much lighter tone to it than a lot of other Coen Brothers movies do, mm-hmm. and it is like truly funny in ways that you don't need to be, you know, sort of high minded about or like pseudo intellectual, right? And in fact, that like that's that's the main conceit of the movie, right? Is that like somebody thinks that they're high minded and intellectual pseudo intellectual and that's the foolish like that's the foolishness at the heart of it. And so I think, yeah, it is it's hearkening back to that time period. And we can talk about Sullivan's travels and this kind of movie that is broadly accessible. And so I think it's such a loving homage to like what film is capable of and can do in terms of like making people laugh in the midst of like, yeah, a great depression or whatever it is. I adore it. Uh, It's like, I don't know. I can't remember if I saw it in theaters, but the soundtrack is like the soundtrack of high school for me. Like I just remember driving my brother, and my cousins to school in my mom's minivan. And like, just we, all of us like listening to this soundtrack and singing it out in the car for, you know, the last couple of years of high school. So, um, yeah, I can't wait to talk about it more with you. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, the soundtrack was popular. I didn't listen to the whole like soundtrack and I don't know that I even like sought out you know, downloading, maybe I downloaded the MP3 of like, you know, the man of Constantaro, but it was weird watching it recently and then starting to sing the song and I started singing and like knew all the lyrics. And I was like, that's weird. Apparently I like heard the song a lot. Uh, so that's always fun to discover the, the things that your brain has dedicated neurons to even after all these years. <laughs> um, Brian, what about you? Uh, yeah, this is, I was thinking this might be my first new Coen Brothers movie, by which I mean the first movie that came out when I started to know who they were. I was trying to I was trying to place that. And I know when Lebowski came out, I didn't hadn't even heard of that movie until someone showed it to me on, you know, on tape. Um, but by Intolerable Cruelty, which was five years later, 
I had seen everything. It was like, we're going to the theater. There's a new Coen Brothers movie out. So like this was, so my, my watch of all of their stuff was somewhere in the 2000, 2001 uh, range. Um, and yeah, I love this movie right away. And I've seen it many times. Um, I, it, it's like, I would say it's probably top three uh, Coen, Brother, Coen Brothers movie for me. I think I would say No Country for Old Men, Big Lebowski, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, Fargo and Blood Simple are my like sort of unfailable five and then nice. everything else you know it varies but th- that's that those and what a run for these guys from Ooh. from fargo into lebowski yeah. into this movie like just talk about a talk about a tri- that should be our spotify question is like what's your favorite three movie run <laughs> by a director where the movies aren't yeah. actually connected yeah um but uh but yeah and i i just i think it does everything i want a movie to do which is like entertain me on just a visceral like i want to be entertained because I'm watching a movie level, right? And then give me some simple themes and stuff to kind of wrap my head around the first time or the second time I'm watching it. So I feel like, okay, the movie was saying something. I'm not sure entirely what it was, but like that was pretty clear. And then give me some, some not so simple themes, some, some sort of symbols and ideas and mysteries where you can kind of unpack it and be like, oh, that's a reference to this thing. And that, you know, your movie shouldn't be, those things shouldn't take center stage but i like when they're peppered which Coen brothers do a lot like those things are peppered throughout so that you can you can come back and investigate the movies and talk about them and think about them later um but at the same time a lot of movies that do that aren't as fun as this movie is and i think that like that's where the Coen brothers often are able to sort of do a magic trick and and pull that off yeah and it's such a like <clears throat> it's a great like star vehicle for Clooney also oh, like in a, yeah. in a way that you know a lot of their movies maybe aren't in that same way of like oh you want to go see the new George Clooney movie it's gonna be fun like everyone let's go uh and so yeah as you're saying it's operating on this really accessible level uh but has all these deeper meanings there that I feel like you can see from the accessible level like that that's my memory of like watching it the first time is like I'm enjoying this and I can see that there's like other stuff over there and it's it's there for me if I want it, but I don't need to like go find it if I if I don't want to. And I think that's another kind of magic trick to to have signals of the deeper meaning there throughout, but not in a distracting way or not right. in a way that makes me feel like, oh, I'm I'm missing something if I don't go over there. It's like there's goodies over there but you're getting lots of goodies here too. So goodies for all. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and what you just mentioned there about, about George Clooney, I think is really critical to all of this. And which is that like, this is like oceans 11 era Clooney. Like he's basically making this movie and oceans 11 at the same time. A movie about Um, trying to get some guys to get together to go after a treasure, but he's really just trying to get his ex-wife back. Yeah. (laughs) Correct. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yes. But think about the character of Daniel ocean. And like, that's kind of how we have thought of Clooney, right? Like up until this point Mm -hmm. Um, in, you know, sort of pop culture, like just so handsome, so cool. Um, and Ulysses Everett McGill is an incredible role for him that plays against type, I think, in a way that's very important. Mm-hmm. And the design of the character, you know, Alex, you mentioned, like, this movie somehow never feels disjointed. And I think the movie pulls that off by hooking us into him, right? Yes. And, like, we care about him 
And the the plot of the movie almost ceases to matter, but we're following him. We're not in his POV all the time, uh, you know, because there are scenes without him in it. But, like, we're just so invested in him and his, you know, often very foolish, like, ideas about himself and the world. And we just want to, like, we'll watch him do anything in any scene. I mean, what an amazing trio. You yeah. know, George Clooney, oh, John Turturro, yes. Tim Blake Nelson. Like, what a wonderful, like, in the, like a Three Stooges, like, trio. And from the beginning of this movie, it just it they do the Coen Brothers thing where the characters were so well drawn and you know Everett like the, the hit all the hair gags and the the Dapper Dan uh, like hair pomade. There's like a version of all that that once again is like somehow annoying or feels like you wanted to do like a characteristic trait for your characters. So they're gonna like do this thing, but somehow it just feels so perfect and and Everett as a character is three-dimensional because he has that self-conception of himself as an intellectual stuck amongst these simpletons. And it, there's layers to his character in that way where he's projecting an image of himself. He's conscious of that image. So it, I don't know. There's just something about it that immediately feels so three-dimensional, so funny, so like enjoyable to watch him react and talk you know just mm -hmm. just talk about yeah. anything is just immediately pleasurable and mm -hmm. yeah that's what you want if on an odyssey movie when you're, you're kind of stuck with three guys just on the road you want every scene with them just to be fun just them being them and and these are it's a really well-designed trio with Clooney at the center uh holding it all together and this would start what uh, Clooney referred to as the idiot trilogy with the Coen brothers, which was this <laughs> intolerable cruelty and uh, burn after reading, uh, uh -huh. which then hail Caesar now. So I guess it's a it's a quadrilogy, an idiot quadrilogy um, by the Blu-ray now. Um, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, you could tell how much he just loves doing this kind of thing, you know, and it's interesting when you go back and watch Cary Grant movies, you can realize how much Clooney uh, was really modeling himself after Cary Grant. Some of their mannerisms and stuff are, are like just dead on. Like you can just tell when someone has like studied someone a lot. And Cary Grant also loved to do it. I don't think he did it quite as with, with as much range as Clooney can do. But like the just that sort of like I want to do something big and bombastic and not have to be the the suave, handsome guy in every movie. And, and he, he nails it. It is a hard gig being the suave, handsome guy in every movie. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Poor Clooney. Yeah, the uh, I was watching the behind the scenes and the Coen brothers were saying, yeah, like you have this image of Clooney as, you know, James Bond almost. But he's actually like kind of a goofball. Mm -hmm. and, and they were saying just his personality behind the scenes, like he loves just being goofy. So it's almost like he gets to be more of his full self <laughs> in roles like this. Uh, whereas, you know, Ocean's Eleven is the the suave, cool, collected Clooney. Well, and, you know, we've talked before about, like, what is the heart or the essence of a comedic character? And Ulysses Everett McGill here is, by design, comedic because he doesn't know what world he's in, right? He lacks self-awareness to understand himself in the context of his world. And so, you know, it's never better personified than the first scene that we see him in, which is, like, they're hopping that boxcar car. 
And he has this natural leader vibe to him, right? He's the first person that gets onto the boxcar. He's the fastest. He seems like he's the strongest. Um, he gets up and he looks these ramblers on the boxcar dead in the face and says, are any boys smithies? Or if not smithies per se, we're otherwise trained in the, the metallurgic, metallurgic arts. arts. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's instantly we're like, oh, this guy doesn't know where he is really, right? Like he himself thinks that he doesn't belong here and yet we can see that he belongs here exactly, right? He's putting on airs when he's literally wearing, you know, chains and trying to hop a boxcar. And then, of course, he gets tripped up and dragged off the boxcar in the most, again, going back to the physical comedy, in the most comedic fashion possible. Um, and I think that that's part of what makes the character, I mean, just in every scene, it's like, what is he going to say now that is absolutely insane for this context right like right. In, in what way is he going to argue with but using you know latin or like yeah. 80 words when five would do um is he going to try to argue his point and everyone around him is behaving like this is the depression era south and nobody has an education sir like, whatever right. the meme is right sir this isn't arby's like <laughs> that's what it is <laughs> Um, and so I, that's always going to be funny, uh, having a character, like a fish out of water, essentially. Right. And I'll just add to, to all of this real quick. Um, you know, part of what I think how they get away with making a movie that feels so disjointed in terms of its episodic nature is, as you were saying, Trisha, like we're hooked into him, but also we're hooked into, to what they're after you know it's like they have a ticking clock we have to get to this place mm -hmm. da 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 but then just as we were talking about with casablanca right around the midpoint it goes oh no this just got more personal than it was for the first half it was kind of this general thing we wanted now it's this personal thing we want when we realize kind of what his true uh ambitions are but then we have this sort of character flaw you know ambition uh, um a uh, theme thing going on where it's about like he believes this and he doesn't believe this and like we know we know this character is going to have to get from point a to point B, uh, in terms of, you know, philosophically speaking. Um, so then when we suddenly take a left turn and go hang out with John Goodman for 10 minutes, we're like, oh no, but we know, we know what the main goal is. So we're back on track here, as opposed to if this movie was, you know, as I think you were saying, Alex, just like more of a, a direct, um, adaptation of something like the Odyssey, where it could just be, we're off over here on this adventure, we're off over here in this adventure, and there's nothing like tying it all together. Yeah. Yeah, very early on, you do have like the really specific goal, the really specific you know time limit on the goal. So it it, it it's part of the, the accessibility of the movie. It doesn't you're not left on your own to kind of just be along for a lazy ride with these guys. It's like, no, I know where we're going. I know what the stakes are. A lot of money's on the line and you got three days to get there. You keep losing your car. Your obstacles are in the way of you reaching this place. So every setback you know, has a meaning as opposed to just like another goofy adventure. You shouldn't have to go on a whole odyssey in order to send a big file to someone. It should be simple and fast, which is why I recommend checking out Massive. Massive is a file sharing service that lets media professionals quickly transfer terabytes of data to anyone in the world over the cloud. Massive provides complete visibility into the status of your client deliveries on a per-recipient basis. Emails are sent when downloads are initiated, and it allows you to keep tabs on who has downloaded what. And Massive seamlessly integrates with a number of apps, including Google Drive, Dropbox, AWS, Slack, and more. 
allowing you to conveniently send files, save large projects securely, and get notified about adjustments made by your team. Plus, with Massive, there are no limits to the amount of data you can send, and you don't need a subscription to sign up. Just pay as you go at $0.25 per gigabyte. To learn more and to sign up for Massive, head to massive.io slash beyond-the-screenplay. When you sign up at that link, you'll get 100 gigabytes free towards your transfer. That's massive.io slash beyond-the-screenplay for 100 gigabytes free. The link is in the show notes. Thanks to Massive for sponsoring Beyond the Screenplay. Now, back to the episode. Yeah, and it's... I, they they do that thing as we've talked about that they do so well like really efficient characterization and getting to know mm-hmm. a character like what a character is all about very quickly um this time i was paying attention to george nelson the bank robber mm. who's like you know oh, shows yeah. up and has a scene and then like he just has a whole arc in this film and is on screen i don't know five six minutes maybe where it's like you meet him He's just robbed a car the way, or robbed a bank the way they, like, reveal that. You know, he has all this money. He seems to not care about it. They go on a bank robbery with him. Someone, like, whispers his nickname. He has this crazy, mm. like, huge, like, reaction to it. He gets angry, but he mostly gets, like, sad and wounded and, like, defeated yeah. in a way that's really interesting. And then you see them at the campfire, post it, and he doesn't care about the money. And he's, like, just deeply saddened by it. Uh, and I was just like, how did they create a nuanced <laughs> character out of this yeah. guy that was just yelling and shooting out of a car three yeah. minutes ago in the film? And now I have this like empathetic, emotional connection to him and like wonder what's going to happen as he walks off into, you know, the background to then show up again at the end and have a resolution <laughs> even there. Right. Uh, it's just like such great, uh, yeah, emotion, um, a way to bring you keep you invested emotionally in the things that are happening and also add like delightful texture to the world at the same time. I just want to just mention that the woman who's like, that's baby face. Like she like is a perfect example of like, where do the Coens find these, (laughs) these actors for these parts? They're always just so utterly perfect. You know, like the guy who, is in like a convenience store and so is out of the Dapper Dan. Yeah. Like just the, just the, <clears throat> the, like the line delivery, like couldn't be better in those moments. And I just continue to be impressed with their casting director, just finding the most pitch perfect faces and voices for every little, you know, character moment. Yeah. 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 And it's, you know, actually I think off mic, Brian, you said that this movie reminded you of, um, Inside Lewin Davis and what was the other movie? Uh, Raising Arizona. Raising Arizona, yeah. But I actually think it also has a lot in common with Lebowski in the way that characters Mm. kind of enter and leave Mm -hmm. the film, right? Like, but then usually come back again later when it's like the best. And the sort of trio of the three guys, right? It kind of has like the dude and Walter and Donnie vibe to them. Um, And the way that people like George Nelson show up, we instantly understand who they are and then they leave. And then, you know, when we see George Nelson later at the end of this movie, he's like, they're going to fry me in the electric chair. <laughs> George Nelson. And you're just like, and, then, <laughs> and of course, t- Tim Blake Nelson is like, nice back on top. Like, <laughs> yeah. 
it's it's wonderful that they they're you know tertiary characters feel like they're there to support the main character's journey and support the theme but there aren't necessarily rules about like and now we got to keep them in here um and complicate things unnecessarily by trying to keep them in here um i really like how you know they're they're camping in there with Tommy and he's just playing the guitar and it's after they've they've done man of constant sorrow for the first time and like Tommy leaves off screen right and we like kind of assume that Tommy will be there from here on in and you know the the um the devil with the dog shows up and they're like <laughs> they're you know gonna burn the barn but they're not in the barn they're over there in the woods or whatever and somebody goes you know George Clooney goes where's Tommy and there's like already lit out. Like he's, he ran the first, you know, second he saw that dog and the mo- you know, the movie doesn't need to show us that Tommy just left. It's like kind of trained us to expect that people are going to come and go mm-hmm. um, from the minute we see like the blind railroad worker who is just there for literally one to two minutes of the movie. We never see how they got off of that thing or where like, um, and then, you know, the various characters like, Wash, you know, cousin Wash, and mm-hmm. um, he just kind of leaves, and then Wash's boy just kind of leaves, and then everybody's like, yeah, moving in and out of the story. Um, Even Pete kind of just leaves for a while. Pete, yeah, yeah. You know, right. After he turns into a toad. Um, right. Yeah. They loved he, him up, got, turned him into a horny toad. <laughs> <laughs> and and thought you <laughs> was a toad. <laughs> Do not seek the treasure. <laughs> <laughs> like okay i just gotta like just it's just all those scenes are just so the good. comedy is like, yeah. it's like this is my like comedic sensibility whatever this movie is just tickles me exactly <laughs> it, you know because like the, the the timing when you when you cut to uh delmar and everett in the car while he's holding the toad and we just we don't know how long they've been driving or how long they've been sitting there <laughs> yeah. and we just come in and he's just like Courses, Pete. Look at him. Yeah. Right. <laughs> the timing on that is perfect because because he, yeah. he like normally he, he starts that line like a second earlier than he should, and it just makes it so right. much funnier. Yeah, yeah. It just it's just amazing. Yeah, okay. I think it, it, Clooney first Clooney says, first "Yeah, line. we got to yeah. consider that maybe that's not right." Pete, and, and then the way immediately he cuts him off. Yeah, right? yeah. like yeah. they've been arguing well, about it for a while, and that's kind of what right. makes it funny. Yeah, but yeah. the cut right before that is like you know. uh Dumber has freaked out and chased the toad and like so splashed funny. into the river and it's like splash 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 cut and right. then they're driving in the car. Right. right. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, and there's a there's a lot of really sharp editing and going back to like the tightness that you brought up Alex, you know, when they mm-hmm. um the the kid the R U N O F T kid uh <laughs> yeah. like rescues them. It's exactly what you were talking about Trisha where it, you know, you kind of think like, okay, well, now they're on this adventure with the kid and there's going to be a bunch of scenes with like, well, when is the kid going to... And then it's like the next shot, the kid is being left behind, right? They dissolve right. from one right. to it and the kid's <laughs> like, you guys are lame for leaving me. And in a single shot that's like maybe 20, 30 seconds, it pans from that kid to them at the, the car with the engine that's like overheated. George Clooney's like, what's the problem? And then it like cuts to the convenience store scene that we were just talking mm-hmm. about and so yes. it's like it's such a quick moment that tells you mm-hmm. everything you need to know and just keeps it moving and doesn't indulge in moments that don't need more time than than they are given 
And that's, but, but also they know what scenes do need that time. And when it is like fun to linger and spend a bunch of time and watch them record the whole, you know, the Soggy Bottoms Boy song, like all that stuff. Uh, just that, that balancing of the pacing is really impressive. Yeah. Was it to say a scene that's like comedic for like the opposite reason for not cutting away? Uh, one of my favorite moments is the gopher scene yeah. where it's like it's like a long take and he just keeps asking, you know, like, do you want the gopher? Do you want the gopher? And then at some point, Clooney's like, no, like, I think a third of a gopher is not going to film me. It's going to make me just be yeah. hungrier. And then he just keeps talking as like they're being, you know, this like, you know, uh, church congregation is like walking past right. them just slowly neither one of them just, is is in the conversation that they're both right. having <laughs> and he just keeps talking yeah. about the golfers and the gopher village and just once again the timing and the delivery is so perfect and the fact that they just let the shot play out is in that moment the perfect tight comedic choice um so that that's why just the movie feels so pitch perfect as far as the comedy it's like both all the techniques are being used both letting somebody talk way too long in a long take feels exactly right and then also these perfect cuts to the next scene at the exact right moment feel exactly right right um just yeah just masterful i also think of like almost as like the opposite of the gopher moment is when um is when big dan teague hits uh, uh, Delmer over the head and then yeah. he's just like kind of still eating he's like what's going on Dan right. <laughs> it's not until he gets hit that he like realizes he's about to get hit it's so funny well right yeah. and it's like it's based in character that's like exactly yeah. the right yes. reaction for uh, yeah Everett to to have in that moment and like how he sees himself in relation to Delmer and, and all that stuff is is all there in this like funny moment which is mm-hmm. yeah yeah I love that moment it's so funny and there's physical comedy, and then it gets hit in the face. It's like, it's yeah. all the things. Yeah. It's all great. Madcap, like, slapstick humor. Yeah. yeah. Very much. Um, and I could talk about that all day and just the the facial expressions that they get. The one, uh, John Turturro's face when he hears the sirens, and he goes, <laughs> <gasps> like, <laughs> yeah. just like, yeah. it's, it's like the biggest, like, did yeah. you, he must have strained his neck doing that. It's the biggest reaction you've ever seen. But it, it's so like that's pretty run of the mill, right? The the like larger than life right. expressions that we see here. And I think that's the coming back to the do not seek the treasure scene. Yeah. Is that they're being huge, right? It's like, do not seek the treasure. And they're they're doing it in like the the hugest way possible that could is not subtle and would be immediately obvious to anyone sitting within 50 feet of them in the movie theater. But they're doing it in this context where they're supposed to be like extra quiet. And the fact that before that with, you know, we thought you was a toad is like, Tim Blake Nelson gets onto his knees. He like clambers up onto the seat, leans over the back of it. And again, in a huge way, it's like, we thought he was a toad. Like it's, it's so big and that's pure physical comedy, right? Like that, the largeness, the overly exaggerated, um, and especially in, again, when in contexts where that's incredibly inappropriate is like pretty much always going to be funny. Um, and then, of course, there's the underlying comedy of the situation, which is the belief, like the fact that these characters are 
so dumb so so as to have believed in like the magic right and and i i like want to get back to the magical elements in this too and the fact that characters like continue to insist that there's probably magic in this world um when it's the depression era south and like nothing has ever looked less magical (laughs) like um but yeah and really quick and and in that scene in the theater the other thing that i feel like is pitch perfect and really hard to create is how the world reacts to them behaving completely inappropriately for this context Mm -hmm. where it's not like the other audience members don't hear them or notice them like you can see like some of the other the prisoners sitting next to uh pete like look at him being like this is kind of annoying but it's not it's not everyone's like shut up or like you know there's aren't these big reactions and so it's it almost like underlines how idiotic these characters are and how ineffectual they are at the plans that they're trying to execute and how the rest of the world kind of doesn't care doesn't matter like everybody else has other stuff going on like they're the other people are just trying to watch they're not important the movie and these people aren't important i think is just adds yeah that extra layer of texture that makes it so much more interesting than a like a the simplest um incarnation of that scene could be yeah yeah Yeah. and there's even like one other extra layer of just it's hilarious that delmar thinks that repeating this completely nonsensical (laughs) phrase will like will elucidate it for pete you know like that's yeah also the characters constantly doing that kind of a thing where they're not reading the context like you said trisha it's just i'm gonna repeat myself as if like you just didn't hear me even though what i'm saying to you would make zero sense out of context and i have no conception of context yeah being slow on the uptake like really slow on the uptake Mm -hmm. is one of the hallmarks of this movie right like yeah you're talking about the reveal with george nelson where they see the car the money's flying (laughs) around he's like get in and they're like they're trying to give him directions and then it's like some of your folding money's come on stowed and like he starts he's like hey did any of you guys know your way around a gun and they're like what no and it just takes them so long to figure out they're with a bank robber um and same thing with like all the rest of you know again being slow on the uptake with john goodman's character right big dan teague is exactly the comedy there which is like it becomes very obvious what he's there to do which is beat them up and rob them and it takes everett forever to figure that out (laughs) this is a tangent that's gonna go nowhere and disappoint everyone but i'm gonna do it anyway have you guys ever seen the tv show taxi that used to be on like nick at night oh hell yeah Okay. Okay. No. Brian knows. So I mean, it was like Danny a big DeVito, deal. Christopher like, Lloyd, Tony Danza, Mary Lou Henner. Yeah. Andy Kaufman. Yeah. There's Andy a scene. Kaufman, yeah. uh, and Carol Kane. Christopher Lloyd is like is kind of the uh, um, the not Pete. Uh, what's the name? Delmar. Delmar character. Like has that kind of thing where he's like an idiot and slow on uptake. And there's a scene where he's taking a driving driver's test. And his buddy is there like, I'm here for emotional support. But Christopher Light's taking the test and has to like keep asking for answers. And one of the so the question is like, what does a yellow light mean? And so he like whispers to his friend, what I does a yellow this. Do you remember that? Slow. What does a yellow light mean? And then his friend's slow. like, slow down. And then he's like, okay, what <laughs> does 
a yellow, right? And then his friend goes, slow down. And what? Anyway, I always think of that in that scene because that's exactly what's happening Uh, with Delmar. It's like, yeah. Yeah, I I remember that gag so well. Uh, See, it went somewhere. (laughs) Yeah, great. (laughs) Paid off. Is his name Jim, I think? Sounds right. Yeah. Yeah. They call him like Hippie Jim or something. Right. Reverend Jim Iggy. Yeah, cool. (laughs) Oh, probably we're right there. Yeah. Well, I think the magical elements of the world are also what make this funny, but compelling and like they make us curious about, you know, what's real and what's not. And and the Coens do this a lot in their movies, Brian, you've pointed it out. Um, and, you know, the, the characters in Coen movies never occupy our reality, right? Mm-hmm. Like. The, at least the central characters never occupy our reality. They kind of occupy their own reality where like maybe it's mythological, maybe it's um, actually magic or there's, yeah, some kind of like the filmmaker gods have like intervened in, in different places or whatever. Um, or there's dreams and omens and tests and other like a mythological sort of construction to what's happening. Um, but I, I do think it's interesting the way that the characters – interact with it in this movie because there's there is a spiritual undertone to it for a lot of the the film both in the music which i think is really crucial to this right not just that it's a lot of hymns and spirituals and things like that but that it's also in the text of the dialogue right tommy arrives to say he's sold his soul to the devil and like they are being pursued by the person tommy describes as being the devil. Um, and then meanwhile, they're talking about getting their sins washed away and they get baptized. And um, there, there's lots of religious imagery and suggestions that like, perhaps there is something supernatural, whether that's like explicitly Christian religion um, or whether that's simply like something in the, in the nature of the world that is like paying attention to what's happening, right? I love that the sirens never are explained in any way. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> it's probably the most mythological, very, magical scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like the other references to the Odyssey, like like the, um, the Colossus, the Cyclops <laughs> in, in Big Dantigue, or, or like the Blind Prophet, they're at least sort of written into the movie in a way where it's like, oh yeah, right. it's this kind of, but the sirens like, nope, literally just, <laughs> they're just driving <laughs> along and suddenly they hear it and they gotta go. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, the thing I talked about uh, in Lebowski, so I'll, I'll say it quickly, is just what I call the implied magic of Coen Brothers movies, where you have some that don't really have any, like maybe Miller's Crossing and Blood Simple and, and even... Um, um, uh, Lewin Davis and stuff where it's kind of like pretty much everything in the movie feels like it exists in 
what something like our reality right and then you have things like hudsucker proxy or barton fink where it's like time actually stops or like there's yeah. a building on fire that people are just like casually walking through or whatever you know that kind of stuff but then you have this like middle ground where it's kind of like where did the stranger in big lebowski come from or like how did this thing like randomly happen and this movie kind of lives in that space where everything happens to happen to them, right? Like they just happen to be going by the sirens or like they, they're here and then they turn and then now they're at like the clan rally or whatever. Just everything is like conveniently in place for them. And if you were trying to write a grounded movie, you'd probably try to at least figure out how they get from point A to point B or like why that thing happened to be in their way. But no, this movie's not interested in that. This movie is interested in just sort of like whatever their next adventure is, it's just there. It's just presented to them. Right. But then thematically, and this is what you were talking about, Tricia, this movie is literally about someone believing in quote unquote magic, right? Like the, the prophet says to them at the beginning, you know, you will see um, the, a cow on the roof, right? And then he's like, ah, oh, yeah, all that mumbo jumbo. No, oh, you guys got baptized and da da da, you know? And then finally at the end of the movie, when they are saved and he still wants to reject, you know, the, the, um, and again, I'm using magic and religion interchangeably, which I shouldn't, sure. but you know what I mean? Um, uh, that, that he still wants to reject it, still wants to reject it. And then he, there he sees, you know, the, the cow and he's like, kind of is all out of ammunition at that point, right? So it's interesting this, and I would say No Country also does that where it's like the magic of the movie is also playing with the theme. Like Shigur is basically be, being presented as kind of the devil in this movie where it's just like this unstoppable force that is coming for you no matter what. But that's not just a thing in the movie that is, you know, uh, heavily tied to what the, what the movie is saying. Yeah. It's also interesting that, you know, the time and place this movie takes place in. And, you know, I think Everett at the end says it out loud where it's, you know, this moment in American history in this place in the South. You know, he's talking at the end about we're going to be electrified and the age of reason is coming in and, and modernity. And so there's, there's something there, too, about a conversation about just the kind of the spiritual, magical, you know, I don't know, just those roots of America that are so steeped in almost like the supernatural, even um, the, the those vibes you get from from this time and place. Uh, and and Everett as this man of kind of aspiring to like the city rationalism uh, being in this other part of America that is very much kind of like supernatural in its vibes. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's I don't know what they're saying about all of it, but I, but I like that's all in the mix here and it's a certain moment in history and in a very specific time and place. Yeah. And I think it's interesting. I was noticing this time around in terms of theme that there are many, many um, characters who talk about answers and like looking for answers. Mm -hmm. um, and the setting does a lot of work towards creating the, like, why would people need answers? And like, you know, it doesn't have to explain that in the very much in the exposition because, like, everyone knows the depression, right? It was like, okay, depression, we got it. Everybody's, you know, struggling. Uh, everything seems unfair. People are out of work. People are you know, living in poverty. Um, we got it. We don't need a lot of context in the expository dialogue about that. Um, but there is a lot of discussion about, like, 
times are hard and people looking people are looking for answers mm. and this idea of like magical thinking they're looking to religion they're looking to politicians right they're looking for mm-hmm. someone to come in and like save them whatever that looks like i think it's interesting that when everett gets home he you know finds that his wife has made a very practical decision um because she was left in the lurch and she was like, no, I'm, I'm doing what I need to do. And, you know, there are, her justification for that is so similar to his, where I was like, I, you guys were chained to me. What was I supposed to do? Like I needed to get back home and this was what was important to me. So I lied and she lies to the girls about what happened to their dad. Um, and again, this, this sense of like morality is kind of gray and people are just kind of, grasping at whatever they can hold on to. And I think for, you know, Everett, the movie kind of signals to us in his moment of crisis, right, where he's about to be hanged and and everything that he, like, turns to a spiritual power finally at the very last minute, but then at the end, you know, immediately goes back the other direction Mm -hmm. and says he doesn't believe in any of it. Um, But I, I just love where all of the themes pop up in this. Um, and I agree, Alex, that without this particular context, it would all feel like harder to believe or just require a lot more legwork on the part of the writing. Um, that there's, you know, period films in general already remove us from ourselves. And so even just by setting this in the depression, you're already getting like distance where we kind of understand that what we're watching is an allegory. Like you don't mm-hmm, need to mm-hmm. explain to us that we're wa- what we're watching is an allegory. Although the movie does take, does do that in a few ways. Um, but even just by setting it in a time and place where there is spiritualism and mm-hmm. this like hungriness for explanations, this gray moral ground, all of that was already embedded in this context. And then on top of it, bring in the Coens and they're sort of low-key, you know, supernatural uh, plot events anyway. And it makes the whole scene and like every scene sort of ripe for more exploration in terms of theme and um, the character's journey becomes that much more fascinating. Well, yeah, and like starting the movie off yeah, with a blind prophet that tells them, this is what you're going to expect, this is what's going to yep. happen, I feel like is signaling that, getting the audience in the right mood. And yeah, I really like that it's investigating these ideas without, to me, taking a clear stance on either of them. Like it, it shows yes. the pros of spiritualism, shows the, the cons, we go to a clan rally like the, all of this can be used for good and evil mm-hmm. um right. but it but it still leaves room for and then everett needs to like uh own responsibility for like the the errors in judgment that he's made and the the faults that he has however he comes to that like that's kind of the most important things he finally, finally learns how to change and um, you know, asks for forgiveness and by doing so, yeah, it takes responsibility and all that stuff. And it can be read through spiritual terms and through like scientific determinism like terms. If you there's enough room to go both ways there if you want. And so I, I like I like that about it and that it can hold all of these things and still tell a transformational story for the main character. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I love that he says he's guilty of pride and sharp dealing. Like those are the two sins that he confesses to. <laughs> and I, I feel like that's very well put in terms of like he kind of sees himself with clarity in that moment. Yeah. But yeah. just going really quickly back to your point earlier, Alex, you know, you pointed out that this is one of the Coen Brothers movies that doesn't make you feel cold and depressed. <laughs> and I think <laughs> I think that's because, as you're saying, Michael, it doesn't come down hard on like a conclusion, right? right. Thematically. It's not like something like No Country which has a very clear, like, nihilism, anyway, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. conclusion. This is very much open to, like, yes, there is maybe magic or, you know, room for the supernatural in this world. And maybe it does us good to humble ourselves in front of things we don't understand. Um, and maybe, maybe, you know, just because we don't, Maybe it is something intervening and maybe it isn't, but maybe still it's good for us to allow room for that, right? And like, I I like that it's certainly, the Coens have certainly come out in other places and other. <laughs> yes. <laughs> they've, they've drawn other conclusions <laughs> at, the, at the end of other movies right. in their yeah. filmography. Yeah. Uh, and this is one that I think even my very religious parents <laughs> do like by the end. So. Yeah. Awesome. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Want to go around and say what lessons we're going to take from Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Brian, do you want to start us off? Sure. Um, it's a little similar to what you guys were saying earlier about how efficient this movie is, you know, at, at going from like, we're going from that scene to that scene. We cut to the kid walking away and we don't we don't need to see him, um, you know, him getting kicked out or whatever. And I was realizing, you know, this movie starts after they've escaped and have already made a plan basically which lets us as the audience like get into the adventure of the movie right away yeah. like we are just off to the races um and you know i i almost certainly would have done like here's prison and here's some guys and they meet and one of them has a plan so they decide to break out together and then at the you know end of the first act they're out of prison and now they get into like the crazy adventures and um and you know that a version of that movie could be fine right but that's not what we want from this movie we want this movie to be just like adventure after adventure and when we talked about ex machina i talked about how that movie does a similar thing where like it starts literally the first minute of the movie is what we would usually be like the inciting incident, uh, you know, on, on page 15 or 20. Um, but also that movie doesn't, is not interested in, in any backstory really for the, for the character, for Caleb. Um, this movie is interested in backstory, but we get it. We get plenty of backstory as we go about who these characters are and what their relationship like Everett with his wife and things like that. And, and of course, Delmer and Pete, what they want from life and, the fact that they had this whole plan to break out and go like we get all that information. We don't need to get it before the the the, the action starts. Basically, we can get it along the way. Um, and uh, yeah, so it's just just a little lesson that if your story starts with a lot of exposition, consider the possibility of like you could start it later structurally and then take that exposition and and pepper it in throughout um, as as needed. Yes. 
and part of why we don't need backstory is that their predicament is so crystal clear. Like they're breaking out of prison. They're on the run. They're being pursued. We can find out why they broke out, what they're after any time later, because the stakes are already just evident. And that, that is part of why you can just start at that moment and get into the details later. Right. I was actually, I was going to mention this. We talked about lost last week, um, but I didn't get around to it, which is the, that show, the pilot never says, they were in a plane accident. Like, yeah. <laughs> you get it, right? You're on a beach. Like, there's <laughs> right. like nobody has to say, like, what happened. And, of course, we get it in, fl- in flashback and stuff later. But, but like, just like this, the image that it is showing you is all you need to put everything else together in your mind. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good lesson. Alex, what's your lesson? I love this movie's finale and the way that it uses music to basically just tie everything together. But both plot threads come together in that in that finale. And the is it is it is it supposed to be kind of like a little concert for one of the politicians? Yeah, I, I always forget be, like what the context it's a, is. It's a benefit for Homer Stokes. Right. For the 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 Klansman one. Right. right. Which is why, like, yeah, his ex-wife's campaign manager mm-hmm. uh, yeah. guys there yeah. anyway yeah basically that whole that whole scene is first of all it's a great example of just how this movie is so satisfying and just bringing everything together in the end it's like like i was saying earlier it's not that, like these episodic moments just for there to be a flash in the pan and then go away like the, we have this these politician subplots that come to a wonderful head in this moment but all of it is all of, all of the resolution happens through music. You know, he uh, Everett wins his wife back through his kind of goof, goofy performance and her seeing how popular the Soggy Bottom Boys are. And, you know, the governor uh, secures his reelection by aligning himself with this incredibly popular music sensation and, and pardons them as a result. Uh, it, but transcending just all those plot, you know, the satisfaction of the plot elements all being resolved in this nice set piece. Just the fact that it's music has this emotional layer as well, where there's like a sheer joy in, you know, the townsfolk just like so excited and so happy to be hearing them perform the song that we got, you know, the original performance on the radio. And now it's like a reprise now. Wait, how do we say reprise. how do we say that word reprise, reprise. <laughs> apparently you say this word reprise it's a reprise now in <laughs> in this uh finale and there's just something that like that's part of what gives gives me the like amelie style like magical warmth mm. you know where it's just there's something transcendent when there's also just like a joyful musical thing happening at the climax of a movie um just because music does transcend so many just the the didactic whatever uh, plot stuff um so i don't know what the lesson is except for like music can be really powerful and can really and can like tie your movie together in this like non-verbal you know not literal emotional way and this movie like a thousand percent does it in that final scene yeah it reminds me kind of of moulin rouge as like they're, oh, they're using the song to tie all the things together and and mm. yeah as you're saying like music is one of the things that we have that is the closest thing to magic as far as how it can affect yes. people so like use it use it when you can it's good well and that whole thing is actually my lesson which is i was noticing i mean i listened to the soundtrack constantly in high school 
Um, and there's so much music. Like there's music when you don't even realize there's music. And most of it is diegetic. Most of it right. is on screen from an on screen source. Um, you know, if it's just Tommy strumming um, by the campfire so or good. even like Delmar, you know, Delmar is strumming in the back seat. He's just like picking a banjo or something. Or it's a fiddler like a guy playing the fiddle while they're leading George Nelson off, you know, down mm. the street because they're going to, like, put him in the electric chair. There's so much music in this. And again, even, like, you know, going back to scenes of, like, even in the Klan rally, everybody's singing. Um, even in the, like, campaign, everybody's singing, right? Like, he sees his, you know, daughters up on stage and they're doing a little musical number for the, like, you know, Homer Stokes for governor. It's just every, nearly every single scene has music in it. And the blending of musical styles creates the texture of the world, but it also hits us emotionally and like helps the scenes feel like they are both moving along in terms of pace, going back to the tightness and magic, what you guys were just talking about, where it's like, there's not nearly this much music and people just singing and playing music in real life. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but in the world of this story, everything is kind of like centered around music, right? People are singing hymns or they're listening to the radio or they're, you know, watching like people singing on a stage uh, or singing around a campfire. It's or the it's grave sort of, diggers. The grave like, diggers are incredible. Yeah. Like yeah. it's such a an important element of the scenes, the soundtrack that's happening, usually from a diegetic source on screen. And so I think that that's um, it's hard to write into a script, probably, mm. um, unless you're like definitely also the filmmaker and you like kind of know what the the source of your music is going to be. Um, but I appreciate how thoughtfully this was put together. The soundtrack was recorded and put together before they shot the movie. So there was a, a soundscape um, in place before the movie was like shot. Uh, so it was like very interwoven into the fabric of the movie as it was being put together. Um, and I think in certain scenarios like this one, it's like the best thing that you could do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's so interesting to think about the difference between musicals and movies with music in them. Right. So it's like, you know, Encanto or whatever, or West Side Story, like musicals, absolutely. Characters are singing their feelings. Everyone knows the same dance somehow. And like that, it just lives in that world. <laughs> um, and then there are movies like I would say like band biopics or whatever, where it's like you, no one would really ever call them a musical, but there's a ton of music in them because we're following the band and we're seeing performances and stuff. And this movie is kind of in that weird space where I, I still wouldn't call it a musical, but to, to the point of everything you're saying, Trisha, it's just like it has so much music in it and the music is like often doing something and uh, and like every character is involved with it and, and, and that kind of thing. So it's like almost as close as you can get to being a musical without technically being a musical. Yeah. Yeah. Also, has anybody ever had more fun lip syncing than like <laughs> George Clooney? Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. Stars. <laughs> he did not have fun because he trained for weeks to sing that song. And mm. they were just like, sorry, buddy, but I think we're going to have to go with someone else. So he, we really wanted to sing the song and couldn't. I want, I want to hear a recording of that. Yeah. Well, he looks like he's having a blast. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. If you're going to have to lip sync, at least yeah. have a lot of fun with it make it yeah. fun i love i love how like 
unsure of himself. He, both the times he sings constant man of constant sorrow, he's just like, I don't know like what I'm doing. Yeah, it's just like, <laughs> is this okay? Uh, yeah. Yeah. And yeah, to your point, Trisha, I think there's something really interesting about it all being diegetic and that's achieving the thing mm-hmm. that you're talking about, Brian, yeah. of like, it's, it's ever present, but it's always in the background. It's not the, mm-hmm. the front of the fa- frame. It's like behind there, but always there doing work. And I think that's something, yeah, super interesting about this movie. Um, What's your lesson, Michael? It's a very short one. Uh, it's about the the very first scene where we see them getting on the train and like the little aftermath afterward that we talked about a little bit. Um, but and this connects to lesson, I think, that Alex, you brought up a couple episodes ago, just like uh, how you introduce characters uh, sets mm. a tone and and conveys the scene conveys their characters and their dynamic super efficiently while also being extremely entertaining um, for reasons we, we've already talked about. But yeah, just the beats of they're all chained together. They're they're escaping prison, jump on a train and all of their behaviors. You know, Everett, he's on the train. He doesn't help the other two get on the train. He starts talking to right. the people and going into his right. speech, which we've already talked about. Uh, and so that just shows us so much about him. And then, yeah, the, the other two fall and bring him down with them. And then the, the debate that happens afterward about, you know, who elected you to be leader? And like, all right, let's all vote. Like, I vote for yours truly. I vote for yours truly. <laughs> Delmer. And okay. he's like... I'm with you, I'm fellas. With you right. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. just like, like you get it. Like nothing yeah, ever changes yeah. <laughs> like from that point. And it's just yeah. so efficient and funny and all these things. And like, and there's no resolution because then they got to keep, keep running. Like it's, yeah. it's almost like a microcosm of the whole, uh, like plot in some ways, just in that, in that one moment. So yeah, just, it's good. Like it's such a good example of being good. <laughs> Yep. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> the end. The end. Yeah. And actually, before we talk about what we've been watching, I'm going to reveal that next week's episode is going to be on The Incredibles. And that's going to Yay. be very exciting. So anyone that hasn't seen it for some reason, go and watch The Incredibles so you can listen to. Go and watch it again. Right. Regardless, go and watch The Incredibles. Um, okay. So what have you guys been watching? Alex, what have you been watching recently? So I went to a Dolby theater and saw The Northman, uh, which was a wonderful, uh, just epic, insane uh, cinematic experience, as I hoped. Um, yeah, it's probably not a movie for everybody, but uh, as far as Robert Eggers movies go, it's probably the most accessible uh, <laughs> or at least <laughs> at least it like looks the most like a normal movie, like a lot of the time. Uh, but it continues what I'm starting to realize is the Robert Eggers thing, which is he just delves so deep into a time and place, mm-hmm. but not just into like the, you know, everything is accurate as far as like costumes and set design and you know what people speak, et cetera. But beyond that, I think his movies are actually trying to like capture like the experience of consciousness in that time and place. You know, the lighthouse is like this fever dream of this very particular kind of situation. It's like sea shanty, like horror. And, you know, this the, <laughs> the, the North, the Northman is is essentially just like pure, like 
testosterone uh, insanity of like what it would feel like to be in like the Viking consciousness, <laughs> like in this time and place where just everything is so horrible and ruthless and in, like insanely difficult to just like survive. Everybody's raiding each other. You know, it's just it's just a deeply unpleasant, like intense, like time and place. And I feel like the movie like just is that on every level um, in a way that I found like it's both intense in unpleasant ways, but also in kind of deeply satisfying ways, kind of like in a Mad Max Fury Road sort of vibe where it's just like this is so insane and this is going so hard this is so metal right now but in <laughs> but in also like a very historically accurate like <laughs> feeling way but it's also magical because people really did believe in kind of shamanistic norse god magic at the time so that is real to these characters uh anyway i have a lot to say about this the movie it is an experience movie, <laughs> yeah. right right which is, you know, yeah. it's a low bar, I guess. Uh, but uh, yeah, I if you're down for that, if all this sounds interesting to you I and, and you are able to go see it in theaters, I would recommend it because it is an experience movie as as his, his movies tend to be. Um, but yeah, it was it was it rocked me. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It's a wild ride. Very nice. Wow. <laughs> OK, uh, awesome. Brian, what have you been watching recently? So I watched a movie from uh, 2020 or 2021, depending with, you know, the way release dates work, um, called Nine Days, uh, which mm. stars Winston Duke, who you'd recognize as M'Baku from Black Panther or the dad from Us, um, as a guy who interviews a group of potential souls over nine day, a nine day period to decide which one gets to become a person, basically, like which one gets to inhabit a body. So it's a sort of, uh, you know, fantasy drama kind of thing. It takes place in just this cabin in the desert, and he has a series of TVs where he can watch the lives of previous people he selected. So, he, you know, these people that he cares about and he's and he's watching over them and everything. Um, and then Benedict Wong is his gruff co-worker who just like, you know, sure. is there to sort of Winston Duke is very stoic and serious. And then Benedict Wong is like, you know, larger than life. Um, and then we were watching basically the nine day period of this new kind of class come in. And Tony Hale is one of them, Bill Skarsgård. Um, and then Zazie Beetz shows up and she's the one who's sort of the wild card, you know, the one who's less willing to play along with the game. She starts challenging Winston Duke's character and she kind of plays by her own rules. And does that make her a terrible candidate or potentially the best candidate? Question mark. Um, and it goes from there, but it's just this lovely little film that, that I really had a great time with. I want to watch it again, actually. It, it sort of feels like something in the vein of her or like an early Charlie Kaufman movie where it's it's weird and it's quirky and it's funny, but it's also really poignant and heartfelt and kind of down to earth at times. Uh, and yeah, it's one of my favorite movies of, of last year and certainly one of the most underseen movies of last year. So I encourage yeah. you to track it down and oh. check it out. Trisha, it was it was playing at Sundance, I think, when we were there in 2020, mm. and I, I I was curious about it, and then I never heard about it again, really, and I, I guess yeah, I just didn't get great distribution or great marketing because um, it went under the radar. Fascinating. Yeah, it's also a weird couple of years, so. Fair. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Not a normal time for yeah. anything. 
<laughs> Do they at any point play the famous Nine Days song, absolutely, parentheses, story of a girl? Story of a girl. Because <laughs> um, it feels like that's music. Yeah, a missed opportunity, if not. Um, <laughs> old, old Uncle Brian has no idea so what you kids no, are talking about. Oh, you're too oh. old. Oh. Wow. Also known as the Lizzie McGuire theme song, I believe. Oh, well, you should have said, you should have learned yeah. that. Yeah, it's the story of a girl. She cried a river and drowned the whole world. It's a great story. We'll talk about it later. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Michael, remember Taxi? <laughs> <laughs> How old am I that I... Uh, yeah. <laughs> excellent. Okay, great. Trisha, what have you been watching recently? So I finally caught a sequel to a movie that I really loved. I saw The Souvenir Part 2, mm-hmm. which came out last year. Um, I recommended The Souvenir... On our Ocean's Eleven episode. Ah, how appropriate. Which I know because a very dedicated listener of ours put together a comprehensive letterboxed list. Um, And so if you too want to know what we've been watching since the beginning of this podcast, you can look it up. Um, Incredible. It is it is amazing and, and what a resource. But anyway, otherwise I would not have any idea of when I recommended The Souvenir to you all. But The Souvenir is a movie... Um, that came out several years ago, starring Honor Swinton Byrne, uh, Tilda Swinton's daughter, and also Tilda Swinton, um, and a number of other people uh, that I really like. This is, that movie is about a film student played by Honor Swinton Byrne, whose name is Julie, and she falls in love with, like, kind of an older guy who has, um, he's sort of like an a very charming but kind of opportunistic and unstable person. Um, and that movie is about their relationship and like it's toxic, but like it's um, transformative for her as a central character. And so this movie is a sequel to that film and it's about her like sort of after in the aftermath of that relationship when it ends Um, She goes back to film school and she decides to make a movie about that relationship. So The Souvenir Part 2 is the central character from The Souvenir kind of doing this meta thing where she's taking a look at her own relationship that ended and kind of trying to make sense of it and interpret it to herself. And it's also like about the nature of art and film um, I should say that these are our period films that are set in the 1980s. Um, and so it's, they're also lightly autobiographical because mm-hmm. they're kind of, they were written and are sort of about the real story of the filmmaker, Joanna Hogg. Um, it's all really fascinating. They're beautifully made, both of them. I really loved the souvenir part too. Um, and it's just, it's cool to see. Uh, I don't know. It's cool to see this when I think when I hear the word sequel now, I get tired Mm -hmm. and it's cool to see a sequel that is so alive and is such a different movie. Like it's a really different Mm -hmm. movie than the souvenir because the souvenir is this portrait of this relationship. And then the souvenir part two is a portrait of a portrait of a relationship through the eyes of the central character who's like looking at herself. It's it's fascinating. It's they're both so beautiful. Brian, you you seem like you've seen them. Uh, I have. Um yeah. and the, the interesting thing about the sequel is it's sort of about you know trying to make art about something in your life and sort yeah. of the complications with that and like does it actually 
heal you and like are you remembering mm. what happened correctly and it's fascinating because like you can go watch the first movie and like actually right. see the scenes that she is like trying to reinterpret and try to remember, like was it day or night or like did this who said what kind of thing you know um so that's kind of what makes it i was like how are they doing a sequel to that movie and then when i saw right. it i was like oh yeah that makes so much sense it's so it's like part two is kind of a movie about the creative process and and sort of the the highs and lows of that yeah and richard yeah. iowate's in it Richard Iowata is incredible, <laughs> who I love. Um, it's also very painful to watch this, to watch both of them, but in different mm -hmm. ways. The second one is painful to watch if you've ever been on a student film. <laughs> You're just like, <laughs> dear God, I never want to go back to those days. Um, but it perfectly captures the experience of making a student film where everyone is so self-serious, but nobody has any idea what the hell they're doing. Um, it's uh, worth sitting through the discomfort of it, though, because it's very... Uh, gratifying and sort of illuminating nice cool okay um and what have you been watching well so i was you mentioned the letterbox thing so i was just trying to remember or try to find when alex mentioned oh brother where art thou and i can't find it on this list and so yeah, i don't, I don't think it. i don't think it's the what am i, I watching really thought it was but i think the film it would be on that list put that in if, your memory if he yeah. had said it it would be on no that yeah list. I, that I don't list recall saying it's clearly yeah this is the law this is the word and i am wrong so i wanted to share that <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah so to just you know round it out watch john wick chapter three parabellum <laughs> <laughs> parabellum uh watching the series like escalate and it's uh and the insanity of the story world has been really fascinating because the first one starts off in a you know, it's clearly this is a, a made up underground world of assassins and there's like cool stuff, but it's like, you know, within reaching distance of like, I can understand that. And by chapter three, like Keanu's in the desert chopping off his finger to like talk to the king of this whole. I don't, it's what? wild, guys. <laughs> yeah. uh, I saw in a theater with Chad Stahelski. <laughs> oh nice. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. Um yeah, for all the talk about John Wick on a horse, not not on a horse as much as I was expecting. Uh, not enough Halle Berry. She was like a really fun addition to to this series, uh, and I would have liked more. Um, it's really they're action dogs, they're, like they're ninja dogs, right? Yeah, like that's some. There's some pretty cool like what dog. <laughs> <laughs> watch this yeah, yeah, i recommended it on our first matrix podcast all right everyone goes to wow. three. yeah yeah the like the choreography of like it's normal fight scene choreography and there's gunfights <laughs> and the dogs are fighting also like in time is like it's pretty impressive like yeah. it's kind of just like getting to watch like stunt people come up with cool stuff and then film it yeah. in cool cool ways and well real quick what i saw um when i saw that movie with the chad stahelski q a he talked about how he wanted action to feel like you are watching like a like theater, you know, at a proscenium mm. stage, basically, where you can't cut in theater. And of course, because he's a stunt guy, he's like, I want to actually see this person move across the screen and do all this and and, and put you, you know, kind of like we were saying with musicals, where it's like when you don't cut, you're seeing all these all this dancing actually happen. And in a movie like John Wick, it's like you are seeing this crazy choreography like actually happen in real time. There's movie magic, there's editing, obviously, but so much of it is happening for real and that's what makes it so impressive yeah yeah it feels like every sequence has that like there's like this is the long take where you're gonna literally watch keanu and halle berry like do some crazy stuff and it's pretty fun. yeah um sounds awesome yeah 
so I'm, yep, I finished that. There's more coming. I will watch them when they come out. Uh, and that, Part four is coming out and pretty soon. I, I look forward to it. And, that, <laughs> and that's my review of the John Wick trilogy. <laughs> awesome. This has been our conversation on Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? We want to say a big thank you, as always, to the patrons that make this show possible. Again, if you want to help us make more episodes and get to our goal, which will unlock our trilogy on the Born Trilogy Plus Two, and get other fun perks, uh, head to our Patreon. The link is in the show notes. Uh, we want to say thank you to our producer, Vince Major. Thank you to our editors, Caleb Berg, Graham Harther, and Eric Schneider. I'm Michael Tucker, and I'm joined today by Trisha Rand, Brian Bittner, and Alex Cayoros. All of our Twitter handles are in the show notes. Send us a tweet and say hi, and we will see you next week for The Incredibles. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. <laughs>